With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today on China Corner Office, a podcast powered by SubChina, the New York-based news and information platform that helps the West read China between the lines. I'm Chris Marquis, a professor at Cornell's Business School, and today's episode features a discussion with Frank Lavin, who has 30 years of experience helping companies succeed in China. Frank served as U.S. Ambassador to Singapore and U.S. Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade. Frank is chairman and founder of Export Now, a company focused on helping international brands enter China. And he has recently published The Smart Business Guide to China's E-Commerce, which is a highly readable book with lots of great points and recommendations about this important topic. As is well known, China has perhaps the most developed and sophisticated e-commerce markets in the world. Frank provides an overview of China's e-commerce ecosystems, highlighting companies like Alibaba and its well-known Tmall and Taobao platforms, as well as competitors like JD and Pinduoduo. While many larger international firms like Nike and P&G have well-developed offering on these sites to complement their brick-and-mortar presences in China, Frank's work highlights how smaller, mid-market companies can access these platforms without establishing a physical presence. And so for these firms, e-commerce can provide a low-cost and even relatively low-effort way to enter the world's largest consumer market. To illustrate how e-commerce is different than the U.S., Frank provides a number of evocative examples throughout our discussion, including boutique cosmetics, Babe Ruth candy bars, and even products as mundane as garden hoses. We also discuss how Chinese e-commerce has accelerated during COVID and the importance of phenomena like Singles Day. While recent years has seen a sharp deterioration in U.S.-China relations, which many suggest does not bode well for U.S. businesses in China, Frank says his experience suggests the opposite. He discusses how large U.S. brands like Starbucks, McDonald's, Nike have continued to grow and in some cases even experienced their best years ever in China. One of the more interesting parts of our discussion was about Daigo, or gray market sales in China, of branded products like cosmetics, milk powder, or luxury bags that were purchased in other countries. 
Originally, Daigo was pioneered by individuals, for instance, traveling to Hong Kong for the day and returning with some goods for their friends or maybe to sell on the side. But now there is a sophisticated Daigo ecosystem. Frank discusses how Daigo can actually be an international brand's friend in China and that Daigo is not necessarily competition for a brand's official channels, but can complement China-specific offerings with products from other markets. And as such, Daigo can help brands grow in China through their strong advocacy. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. Frank, welcome to China Corner Office. Great to be here, Chris. You know, first, I just want to congratulate you on your recent book, The Smart Business Guide to China E-Commerce. You know, it's a really very highly readable, very digestible guide with lots of great points and recommendations. First, I'd love to just start with a real general question of why you wrote this book and what your goals are. Well, first, thank you for your kind words. It's always uh, flattering. I think when an author really commits himself to a project and the project finishes and then it gets uh, somebody, a professional in the field to give it that kind of a compliment. So that's a very meaningful response. Uh, But look, to answer your question, there was a very simple reason. There's sort of a big gap in the market between, I think, the possibilities of China e-commerce and the potential boon that it offers U.S. businesses and U.S. business awareness or comfort with it. So a lot of U.S. businesses aren't even aware of how powerful China e-commerce is, and those who are aware are intimidated by it. They don't have any connectivity with China. There's just a huge cultural or language gap. There are political issues. And so they are just, they find it all uninviting. So the point of the book is to say, boy, it is accessible. All of the majors from the U.S. are there. The Nikes, the Procter & Gamble's, the Budweiser's, and so forth, they are all there. They are all doing it like crazy. But because it's e-commerce, it is really accessible to the mid-tier and the junior brands as well. Huh. Interesting examples. You know, I can see, though, how, you know, firms like Nike, P&G, you know, large consumer brands can access platforms like Tmall, JDD, Pindodo, you know, but these dominant platforms can also constrain entry and maybe being even very intimidating to sort of smaller or mid-tier firms. Can you say a little bit about how mid-tier firms can access those type of platforms? Well, but also people are, uh, it's not terribly complicated, but people can perceive it as complicated and people don't have any China footprint or team or institution say, look, I'm not, I'm not going to fly to Shanghai and interview brand managers and try to set up a China operation if my entire China revenue might be a few million dollars. It's just not worth quarterly trips and it's not worth the heartburn of uh, trying to run something remotely. If I'm running a $300 $300 million brand in the U.S., I don't feel excited about chasing what might be 3 or $5 million in China. So that's sort of the, it's, it's, it's as much opportunity cost as intimidation. Well, but my response to that is, look, you need a partner. You need a local firm that will do all that work for you. And yeah, you should not be flying to Shanghai on a quarterly basis to chase a few million dollars if you're running a $300 million brand in the U.S., but you should be have a team in Shanghai that is working for you and you can have weekly or monthly reports from these folks and and have them outsource that activity, outsource the e-commerce operations. Yeah, uh, that really makes a ton of sense, of course, you know, really trying to source out, you know, the right local partner. And, you know, I teach on doing business in China at Cornell and actually 
you know, in our analysis of, you know, lots of cases of U.S. firms going to China and failing, you know, actually it's this, you know, failure in local partner management or maybe even not even engaging a local partner is one of the reasons why these companies fail. And and I hope, you know, later on we can get into more about selecting partners, you know, what makes a good partner, et cetera. But before doing that, can you please describe a little bit in how China e-commerce is different than the USA and what sort of dimensions we should be thinking about when we're comparing the two? Yeah, thanks. There, there are two or three big differences. One is uh, the relevance of e-commerce to the entire uh, retail market, meaning in the U.S., uh, e-commerce accounts for about 20% of retail sales. So that's a very respectable slice of the pie. But in China, it is over 50%. So we would say any U.S. brand can be pure play e-commerce in China and still reach a significant segment of its uh, addressable market. And look, if it's 50% for the entire retail market, that means for the premium space where U.S. brands tend to reside, it's going to be 60 to 70%. So to say, boy, if all you need to do is run e-commerce operations and you can hit 60 to 70% of your market, that is not a bad deal. Over time... You can decide whether to migrate some activities offline and look for offline. Over time, you can do that. But even if you just remain pure play e-commerce uh, for the near term, that is pretty good results. So we say in the U.S., e-commerce is still icing on the cake. But in China, e-commerce is the cake. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I obviously haven't been to China since COVID began. But before COVID, you know, I was in China, you know, two to three months a year. And you know, to see actually how easy it was for all of my sort of friends and colleagues. And even I, you know, got in on it to just, you know, order things up and have, and have them delivered, you know, very, very quickly. Um, you know, through COVID, you also see, you know, these housing estates that have mountains of packages, you know, as people are sort of locked in quarantine, you know, they, you know, engage in a lot of, a lot of, a lot of buying. And, you know, I'd like to hear a little bit about how, COVID has accelerated the trend of e-commerce or more generally what has changed during COVID? No, no question. No question that uh, when people are under lockdown and people, even when they're not under lockdown, they're just less excited about retail bricks and mortar experience that there is an ongoing shift to e-commerce in China. So I think we're going to see something like 54 to 55% of retail spend be in e-commerce this year when our statistics are out this year, but it'll be crowding 60% next year. China doesn't have that legacy infrastructure that the U.S. has. China doesn't have the, the shopping mall infrastructure the U.S. has. China doesn't have the density of car ownership the U.S. has. China doesn't have the uh, legacy of big box stores the uh, U.S. has. So what you and I my, might consider to suburban you know, retail weekend shopping experience, let's, I got to run a few errands when we run around town, that's not as accessible for someone in China as it is in the U.S. And it's just simpler easier and faster to purchase it all online. And then you get discovery advantages buying online as well. You can get instantaneous uh, price comparison. You can get a lot of rich data and context and history online. You go to, uh, not to not to knock U.S. retailers, but go to a sporting goods store in the U.S. and ask the store clerk which tennis racket is responsible for the most number of wins at Wimbledon. Which of the winners in Wimbledon tend to use? And the store clerk is likely to say, "Beats me." So why why did you do, why did you even ask him? Why don't why don't you just Google that? But so same thing in China. You can say, you know what? I saw this player really smash it. I really like that 
racket. It looks good. I feel good about it. And I'm just curious who won the most in Wimbledon. I can get that on a search engine in China instantaneously. So I'll get better information and better data. And then I can search who's got the best price for that and who will deliver it. And I said, I didn't have to leave my chair to get that answer. So why don't I do what I, I you know, I was in China when the uh, Meghan uh, Markle got married. It was interesting to me how many people were interested in her apparel and in the apparel of other people in the church service. And you literally had online people saying, hey, look at the woman three rows behind her. What is she wearing? And somebody right back, here's what she's wearing. And somebody right back, well, here's the link where you can buy it. And so there was enormous social infrastructure behind these retail sales that we normally just don't see in the United States. Yeah, right. You know, the thing that always amazed me, you know, during my time in China is just the speed of the delivery, uh, how fast things could get you. And I think part of it is, you know, labor costs are so low, you know, you can have these, you know, sort of quasi, you know, bicycle, moped, motorcycle type, type, type vehicles that where there's boxes on the back, um, and, you know, one of the things when I, when I was going to China very frequently in like, I think it was 2014, 2015, you know, you saw, saw a lot of those, uh, with Amazon on the back, you know, Yamasun, uh, however, you know, more recently Amazon has not done well, you know, we had LinkedIn pulling out, uh, can you say a little bit about those firms and why actually they haven't thrived? Whereas the Chinese competitors actually have. Well, the, look, yeah. And, and look, some of the same tech issues we see in the United States about big data or, you know, quasi monopoly roles played by a private company or even unfair, uncompetitive prices. If somebody has a, a, a industry lead in a certain segment, does that give the market power to sort of squeeze out the, the second place person? So those, we have seen very similar issues in those, in that respect in China and the U.S., but, to your question, particularly, Amazon just made some mistakes when they went into the market. They originally charged for a listing, and Alibaba didn't charge for listings. So Alibaba said it's not about revenue, which is an interesting approach because I think if you go to Amazon today and ask Jeff Bezos today, he would say that he's the number one proponent of this view, that you're better off grabbing market share, you're better off grabbing a customer base, and you can always figure out revenue and net later on. But go, but Alibaba was more aggressive than even Jeff Bezos and said it's about establishing yourself, become the preferred platform. And that it is a somewhat of a natural monopoly in a market that if you if you do have to shop for that tennis racket, you're saying, look, I don't want to go to five different platforms. I don't even want to go to two different platforms. If I go to one platform and they have 80 different tennis racket brands, I'm pretty happy. So there's a there's that monopoly element of it. And if that's the case, then you better just be first and you better have the most people signed up and don't worry about charging people or even making money out of it, but become the go-to place. And then you'll, and you'll, you'll make money just on volume. You know, one of the things I found really interesting in your book uh, and very useful is how you contrasted many of the different platforms that exist nowadays. You know, obviously, you know, actually, you know, most of the time I spend in China, you know, Alibaba had, you know, Tmall, Taobao, obviously JD is a big player. You know, these are huge incumbents. And more recently, in the last few years, you've had, you know, Pindodo, uh, Xiao Hongshu, you know, other platforms have come and actually, you know, built these giant businesses, which just seems amazing to me that they were able to compete against 
these really massive incumbents. Can you say a little bit about how those companies have actually come to compete against you know players like Ali and, and JD? Sure, sure. Uh, look, Alibaba remains the largest, and Tmall is the B2C platform in the Alibaba uh, universe. And we would typically say with a new brand to market, a new brand in the country, start with a Tmall store just because it is the most number of eyeballs. And something like 50 to 60% of the retail market is on the Tmall platform. Uh, so, and their permutations, Taobao is a permutation, Tmall Global is a permutation, Tmall Direct. So they're permutations of that. But that family is a huge family uh, that is a great place for a new brand to market to get started. But JD is the second. JD is uh, started in bricks and mortar. They have a mammoth offline retail uh, network in China. They pioneered a lot of same-day delivery. They are partially owned by Walmart, so you can see that Walmart heritage. So they are uh, very strong. They have they particularly strong in areas like consumer electronics. So if you need a flat-screen TV, you might be more likely to go to JD.com uh, than to Tmall, but if you need cosmetics or apparel, you might be stronger at Tmall.com. PDD, Pinduoduo, as, as you pointed out, is an extraordinary success story because it's only a few years old and it's gotten into the top tier of platforms in, in a few years. And Pinto Duo pioneered social and value marketing. So what really happened as e-commerce got to maturity in China, the early adapters tended to be more affluent, uh, more educated, more oriented toward the international brands. And as it matured though, it was became within reach of the middle class and lower middle class and the value segment of the market. So T-Mall's DNA and JD's DNA is much more toward the premium segment, the Nike, the Levi's, and so forth. Pinduoduo is more toward the value segment of the market, and it has introduced social uh, dimension, social consumers' behavior. So what Pinduoduo does is to say, we will sell a product. If you buy this product with at least four friends, here's your price. If you buy it with 10 friends, the price drops. If you buy it with 20 friends, the price continues to drop. And every time you you decide as an individual, yeah, I will buy that, it gives you a link and you post it on your social media that, hey, I just bought I just bought a dozen of these. And if you buy two, the price will go down. So you're inviting, you're always soliciting your friends to join you in a group buy dynamic. So it has a real uh, strength in that value segment of the market and the commodity segment of the market. Think of things like uh, light bulbs or toilet paper. I was talking with one of the Babe Ruth uh, executives before COVID was my last time in Shanghai. And I said about U.S. brands on PDD. And I said, what is the number one U.S. seller on PDD? Now, this is two years ago. He said, Babe Ruth candy bars. So, but that's an example of, you know, it's not, it's not the $200 shoe. It's the $1 candy bar kind of product, right? So, uh, and you know, if you want a Babe Ruth, you want a Babe Ruth candy bar. So, uh, good for you. Well, interesting story. I, I haven't heard of Babe Ruth candy bars since I was a young kid. Glad to hear that they're still going well. Um, uh, another topic I'd like to discuss a little bit is how U.S.-China relations affect these different, you know, uh, online platforms and U.S. companies potentially thriving on them. Mm. You know, obviously we have the trade war. Uh, also, you know, China, the Chinese government has cracked down a lot on platform companies. Yeah. Can you reflect on that a little bit and actually what that has done to actually the U.S. firms doing business in China on e-commerce? Well, I, I'll tell you sort of the good news and the bad news. Uh, and we are we are at a moment of 
if not friction, it's certainly a downbeat moment. I think we had maybe more friction in the U.S. under uh, President Trump, and some of the friction is sort of day-to-day criticism has faded. But look, the fundamental issues, I think, are still there, even if they're not uh, part of a day-to-day conversation. Uh, but So here's the good news and the bad. The good news is, all during uh, this bad weather, U.S. brands continue to grow in China. U.S. Chinese uh, consumers' orientation toward U.S. brands continue to grow, and the Chinese government has not done anything to direct consumers away. They've not orchestrated a boycott or said, don't do this. We don't want you to buy Nikes. We don't want you to buy Crest toothpaste. The Chinese government has been uh, uh, neutral or agnostic and, and just it doesn't express a great deal in the way of preferences what Chinese consumers do uh, vis-a-vis their personal spending in China. So that's sort of the good news that the market is moving at. And I'll tell you something, this will be Nike's best year ever in China. This will be Starbucks best year ever in China. This will be McDonald's best year ever in China. So, so well, consumer spending continues to grow and the economy continues to perform. So it's there's a lot of good news there. That's the good news. The bad news is this. It definitely overlays U.S. business decision-making. You've got a group of uh, mid-tier U.S. businesses that are uh, eager to start going international. They know they're getting to maturity in the U.S. They've got to start looking at new markets. China, in the abstract, is a really appealing market because it's the largest retail market in the world, still the second largest economy in the world, second to U.S., but the largest retail market in the world. So the point is, if it's going to take as much time and effort and bother to set up operations in China as it does in in Spain, well, you know, go to China because it's 10 times larger than Spain. So so that had a very strong appeal on a lot of mid-tier behavior, but but some of the political friction has cooled some of that. I, I think that's unfortunate. I think it's misplaced. But look, uh, some businesses behaviorally are more cautious. By the way, I've seen this elsewhere, Chris, just to give a, 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 a related example, but I saw a very similar set of discussions about U.S. businesses in Britain because of Brexit. You know, is Brexit going to hurt my activity in Britain? Well, the shorter answer is no, it, it won't, but it will complicate supply chain. It will complicate inventory. It will, if you have HR needs that are cross-channel, it's going to complicate that. So it's going to add a level of complexity and a level of cost that didn't previously exist. So it's going to have a modest dampening effect. But you see the same kind of uh, point in in China, that just a little bit of negative coloration uh, can be off-putting to people. But but my message is, look, all the more reason why e-commerce is the best solution. Because you can have a full-blown China footprint digitally without ever going to China, without ever hiring anybody in China, without ever setting up a legal entity in China. So it's almost a 19th century business model, meaning you get your product to the port of Los Angeles, uh, we can take it or somebody can take it from there and sell it on Tmall or wherever. And you get your money as you say. If you want to remit it every week, that's fine, or twice a month or whatever you want. But you get the funds remitted and uh, you never have to do anything directly with the product. But this is how the great trading houses were set up you know, 100 years ago or 200 years ago. They ship products to France and Italy and Japan and they get they get money back and they never go to France or Italy or Japan, right? Huh. That, you know, that historical resonance is quite interesting. I wasn't aware of those, you know, uh, sort of way, the way, you know, international commerce was conducted in the 19th century. Uh, a lot of the examples that you've given, though, you know, Nike, um, Estee Lauder, you know, are, are companies that I assume actually do 
have a physical presence and they're actually very large brands. Can you say a little bit about actually the mid-tier companies that you're actually focusing on that don't need a physical presence? Like, so what are some examples of some companies that actually, you know, follow, follow your advice and just establish an e-commerce uh, strategy? Well, that, by the way, that is common in the that is common in the U.S. and in China. Most common in the beauty space and co- with cosmetics, because there the in the last ten years there's been this proliferation of boutique brands and surgeon brands, specialty brands, and the consumer in that space has a real appetite for uh, this kind of product. Right? They they want they're moving away from the generic product. They move the, to moving away from Budweiser to the craft beer. Right? So everybody has special skin needs or special preferences or different body type or allergy. And so they're very experimental when it comes to boutique beauty. So you'll have a a brand that could do quite well in China, sell $5 million a year in China, but that's typically not enough to get offline distribution, right? I mean, offline, you're dealing literally with that shelf space series of issues and people giving up shelf space are saying, look, I've got opportunity costs here. If the entire revenue of this product is five million, what am I going to get if this is in my store? So this is this is a brand that's only bought by the real aficionados. It's not a it's not a mass market brand in in China. In the U.S., it might be more broadly accepted. It might be have a hundred million dollars of sales, but it might be five million in China. So that's a very good example of a pure play digital solution. Uh, thanks. You know th- those examples are really interesting. Uh, in the book, though, you actually have sort of the opposite argument as well. I mean, one of the early chapters uh, is titled, I think, The Law of Convergence. And you discuss how, you know, consumer taste around the world are actually converging. And, you know, cite Starbucks as an example, which I think is a great example because I'm always surprised how, you know, Starbucks in China look just like, you know, the Starbucks I see in, in New York, although they may be sort of bigger um, in many cases. Uh Many companies, though, actually thrive in China because of their local tailoring. Obviously, KFC is, you know, one of the big, you know, obvious examples of that. Coke has done, you know, they obviously have Coke, its product being successful, but then many other, you know, milk-based, juice-based products that actually have succeeded tremendously. Can you say a little bit about this, you know, tension in some ways between convergence and homogeneity and the extreme tailoring that actually an e-commerce solution allows a company to do. Yeah. Well, and I think it's a balance. Yeah, I think it's a balance in the sense. In terms of quality standards, we say convergence holds, meaning uh, consumers around the world tend to converge in their tastes if you hold even for income or education. So it's a Mercedes-Benz is an extraordinarily popular car in every market in the world because consumers respect what it has to offer. Nike, similarly. Disney, similarly. Jack Daniels is the same. Starbucks, absolutely the same. So the point is, uh, one of our sayings is there's only one cup of Starbucks in the world. When you go to Shanghai and order that French roast, you're going to get the exact same cup of coffee made the exact same way as when you go to Seattle and order it or Mexico City or Paris. It is the exact same cup of coffee in the world. Tastes do converge in that sense. But Starbucks, being a very smart marketing organization, also knows how to reach locals on their terms, how to play into local culture, local preferences. So some of the items are customized. Some of the pastry and food items are customized. You know, green tea pastry or something or building promotions around Chinese holidays, for example. But here's here's one or two things that 
Starbucks does differently in uh, China that they don't really need to do or want to do in the United States. Uh, one is the not turning tables and free Wi-Fi offering. Meaning if you're a young person in China and you want to get together with your friends, where do you go? Well, you don't want to go to anybody else's houses because these apartments are usually very small and you have a lot of parental scrutiny. So that's not that's not a whole fun. The whole point of this is to get away from. You certainly can't go to a bar. That won't be permitted if you're a teenager. That's not kosher either. Uh, but Starbucks is a great place. Starbucks, you can tell your mom and dad, hey, we're, we're studying for the math exam tomorrow. We're all going to meet at Starbucks. And, and you can do that. So Starbucks becomes the third place where you all meet. And they won't turn the table. They won't bug you after 20 minutes and say, hey, kids, time to beat it. And it is free Wi-Fi as well. So Starbucks has made itself sort of the clean, acceptable, alternative place to hang out where you're not, no alcohol is going to get served, nothing untoward will happen, and you won't be worried if you're a mom and dad and your kid is spending a few hours at Starbucks with their friends. So that's one thing they've done differently is how they, how they market a position Starbucks uh, in that sense. The other thing they've done differently, they don't do in the U.S., is home delivery or office delivery. I mean, you can order Starbucks on your app and you can get it delivered for, say, in Shanghai, a 50 cents charge. And this becomes important because, remember, you just don't have the per capita consumption uh, in China that you have in the U.S. So the likelihood of finding a coffee machine in somebody's home or somebody's office is significantly lower. So and the point is, if I'm running a, a small accounting firm in Shanghai, I probably wouldn't have a uh, a, a coffee machine, but all of a sudden these Americans showed up, clients, and I want to say, oh, well, how do you like your coffee? And I'll get you a cup of coffee. And for, again, for a few renminbi for 50 cents, the, the fellow comes riding over on his bike with some coffee. You say, problem solved. And I'm saying, I'm kind of glad. I don't want to, I don't want to buy a coffee machine and have coffee sitting around to use it twice a year. So that's a, it gives you enormous reach with sort of the marginal consumer if you do that delivery and they only, uh, let's say half, halfway oriented coffee uh, enthusiast uh, has a real boost with getting that home delivery. Yeah, that's an interesting example of how, you know, the interest of consumers in China can really shape effective tailoring strategies, you know, in this case uh, for Starbucks. Uh, what other generalizations do you have in the book on, you know, so to speak, you know, consumer trends in China that e-commerce can be effectively tailored for an international uh, international brand? Well, well, remember this. Remember this. Even though China has enormous amount of prosperity, it is still a developing country. So China is sort of one generation out of poverty. You could say that. So there's a very strong middle class and there's certainly upper middle class, more affluent people. But the per capita GDP, per capita purchasing power is significantly lower than the United States. So, so think of the market this way. In the United States, you might be a mass market product. Uh, if you're Nike, my guess is the, the marketing people at Nike in the United States say, we want to speak to 75% of the U.S. market. We're going to really speak to everybody. You can be, you can, you don't have to have a high income to like Nike and to want Nike. Uh, but in China, you might only be speaking to 25% of the market because you say 75% of the market just cannot afford it. So you, you become much more of a premium product and much more of a segmented product, even though it's the exact same product, but, but that's just a reflection of purchasing power. Now, the good news for U.S. brands is, look, 25% of that market is still a few hundred million people, 1.4 billion in China. So that's 350 million people. So it's okay just to speak to 25%. But my guess is everybody from, you know, Hershey's 
uh, uh, to other to an apparel company has the same kind of dynamic that in the United States, Hershey's would say, look, we market to 90% of America. We talk to everybody. Anybody can get a Hershey's bar and wants a Hershey's bar. In China, we just don't because it is a little bit of a of a premium item in China and not everybody has that purchasing power. And it's a little bit exotic since chocolate was not originally part of the Chinese diet. So we're only maybe speaking to 25% of the population. Well, one area you talk about in the book, which you know really I think reflects a lot more than 25%, uh, of the population is Singles Day, sort of a you know a shopping holiday. The f- four ones, uh, you know, one 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 one, uh, November eleventh. You know, I'd, I'd really like to hear if you could reflect a little bit on how that has evolved. It does get some coverage in the U.S. media, but I think it'd be also helpful to learn, you know, a little bit about what it means for e-commerce in China. Well, Singles Day is the largest shopping day in China, and I believe it is the largest shopping day in the world. And it's November 11 or 11-11, as you say, four singles. And it's somewhat of a contrived or artificial holiday, meaning it's not a traditional Chinese holiday from the Chinese calendar. But it is explicitly a shopping holiday. And the logic is this. Why it's called Singles Day is because instead of waiting for a birthday or uh, an engagement party or wedding, uh, if you're single, you still need things. So let's have a shopping holiday around people who don't necessarily have a large family gathering that will get a birthday present where they can buy things for themselves. So we'll have all of the same dynamic of a shopping holiday, meaning a lot of promotions, a lot of discounts, a lot of sales, but people are really buying for themselves. So if you did want that big screen TV, you'd say, why don't you just wait a few more days till November 11th and you will see massive market, you may see a 40% reduction in price of that television. So uh, it's an enormous boon to consumers. You know, one of the other interesting, unique elements of the China sort of e-commerce uh, market, broadly speaking, that you discuss in the book is the Daigo phenomena where, you know, this, you know, there's agents in other countries, you know, maybe Europe or Italy, if it's sort of these fancy Italian bags or, you know, maybe uh, milk powder from Hong Kong or cosmetics, um, you know, where it's not through official channels, but it's through some sort of gray market third party. These are authentic goods, but purchased abroad and then imported informally into China. You know, you actually discuss Daigo as I think you use it as sort of the, you know, a brand's best friend in China, which is sort of an interesting uh, perspective. And, And could you say a little bit more about why that is? Yeah, Daigo is an informal market, sometimes called a gray market, but some of these people are pretty sophisticated. Somebody might be running 50 or $100 million worth of business where they will buy items directly. Frequently, they buy at retail, bring it to China and resell it online. And so it's gray market, meaning it's not black market. These aren't counterfeit items or stolen items. These are legitimate items, legitimately acquired, uh, but they're otherwise maybe not available in China. And it's really interesting to me that we have some really successful brands in China that only have a portion of their products for sale. And they have their own internal logic as to why that might be. But some brands have sort of an arbitrary cutoff. We'll bring any product into market that will sell at least $10 million because we think it costs $10 million to for the infrastructure to run that program. You say, okay, maybe that makes sense. But by the way, you're really leaving some money on the table. If you have 30 other brands that are below $10 million, you're really leaving some money on the table. Well, sure enough, some clever fellows in China see that too. They say, I can buy these products at 
Sam's Club or maybe buy through distributor in the U.S. and bring it in in duffel bags or however I want it, and I'll sell it. So that's a, a, a reasonably common phenomenon, particularly for exotic brands. The other, the other interesting thing that happens is sometimes if there's a health or safety issue, the Chinese consumer attaches greater uh, validity to the Daigo seller than even the authorized store, meaning we work with Abbott. Abbott does Simulac uh, powdered milk, baby formula. Uh, and we help manage the Daigo program. The Chinese consumer will respect somebody standing in a Sam's Club doing a live feedback to China. They're in a Sam's Club in the U.S. and they're saying, I'm buying your Simulac for you right here. And you'll see it in five days. Uh, and they know it's a live feed. They know who that person is. It's almost a personal shopper kind of program. But, but they derive comfort from that, that this is, I'm getting the real Simulac in the United States from my friend who's buying it for, for on my behalf. So if that's what it takes, that's why I'm saying that fellow is your friend. If you're Abbott, please view that person as your friend because he's helping push sales through the system. That's really interesting. I, I, I didn't know that, you know, even the U.S. was involved in this and in sort of international shipping and that someone could be, you know, buying these products in Sam's Club and that Abbott in this case, could be actually happy with that, you know, and shipping it and getting it in five days. You know, most of my examples that I was thinking of were like in Hong Kong, you know, where there's actually limits in stores as to how much milk powder you can buy. And then people end up just walking it across the border. Maybe it's shipped internal to China, but not this where it's, you know, shipped from the U.S. You've got a whole, you've got a whole system of arbitrage and cross-border activity in Hong Kong, as you described. And I'll tell you something else, Chris. You see cosmetics coming in from Bangkok. For whatever reason, there's distributors that somehow can get a lower price in Thailand, and they'll bring it in. And look, some some brands are happy with this. Some brands are not happy with it. I mean, the good news is it does promote your brand, and you do get revenue. And the bad news is you don't always have quality control the way you want it. So I would say I'd encourage it, but I'd want it managed through a system where I'm always know what's being sold under my name and you don't have that quality issue potentially. Yeah. Uh, so on that quality issue, you know, you, you mentioned many of these Daigo are, you know, professional operations and they're selling genuine articles. Um, but I think also e-commerce can be a channel for counterfeiting, you know, especially things like luxury, cosmetics. You know, there's been, you know, in various media, you know, things like on, you know, Taobao, uh, you know, counterfeit goods being sold. You know, it'd be great to hear as well about how, you know, non-Chinese brands are dealing with counterfeiting issues uh, on these platforms. Yeah. That can happen. That can happen. Look, we worked with a cosmetics company that asked us, they hired us because they had some inconsistencies between sales data and what they're shipping, meaning the reported sales on Tmall was at variance with what they were providing the store. They said, how could this be? What's going on here? And this was uh, color makeup, lip, lip and skin uh, color makeup. Uh, and we looked at the store. We said, look, the store is selling items under the brand, under the logo, and so forth, that the company doesn't manufacture. So, meaning he had the official, this person had the official store, was the official agent, and to make up a number, he's selling 40 products that are officially provided by the U.S. brand owner, the U.S. manufacturer, and then he says, hey, I can, I can contract manufacture 10 other colors locally. I can just put those in the store as well. I could sell that as well. Why do I have to pay some guy in the U.S. royalties or anything for use of their brand? I can copy their trade. I can copy everything. So the point is you you have scope for monkey business. And I'll, 
I'll say it rather cynically that don't be 100% passive about your China activity. Work with a trusted partner, use a secret shopper program, get independent verification of what's going on, but do not be 100% passive about your China activity. Uh, and then you're, you're giving scope for monkey business if you are. And we would always, so we have some clients that we don't sell for, but we'll do independent audits for, we'll do secret shopper programs for, we'll do competitive analysis for, and, and good for them. They need to get that kind of data. And maybe if you're selling in Canada, you say, I don't need any of that data because I don't expect anybody in Canada doing this. But if you're selling in China, it's very tempting for someone to engage in these kind of uh, practices. Yeah, interesting. Great advice. You know, So what I'm taking away is you know, partners, audits, and mystery shopping are really, in many ways, the key pieces of advice you have. Yeah. And, and let me say a word, too. I, I think the system, I think the T-Mall and JD system against counterfeits actually a pretty robust system, meaning every once in a while, I'd say at least once a year, we're calling them up to say, hey, there is a counterfeit. There's this problem. There's a takedown procedure. And every single time we've done it for at least five years, the system works very well. So I give T-Mall a lot of credit. I give JD credit for you know having a lot of integrity to their system. But it is a passive system. They would say, listen, unless somebody's complaining, we don't do anything. We can't police 100 million products. That has to be the brand owner has to say, this is not kosher or this is right or whatever, and notify us. So you need to have somebody in your team that can do that kind of work and, and work with the, the platform to get the bad stuff taken down. Yeah, no, that's that that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's not just, you know, a China thing. I mean, I hear the same thing on Amazon where there's a lot of counterfeits and, you know, the brands really are responsible for, you know, policing that. Uh, I wonder also if we could talk a little bit about Chinese e-commerce going global. Uh, you know, most of your work and advice is on U.S. companies, you know, going to China. But then the converse of that is, you know, Chinese companies um, going global. And one of the things that we talk a lot about in my Doing Business in China class is how Chinese companies end up actually very much tailoring themselves to the local market. Makes a lot of sense. 1.4, you know, million uh, folks li living there. So, you know, huge domestic market. But that in some ways, you know, may work against them trying to go global uh, because, you know, actually it's harder to enter other markets. And so, you know, one example, of this that we 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 uh talk about is Uber versus DD. You know, Uber, you know, failed tremendously uh, in trying to enter the China market, spent two billion, you know, dollars apparently, and just couldn't crack, you know, couldn't crack it. Uh, but actually, if you look globally, actually, Uber is more successful in other markets, you know, non-China markets than DD has been. So I was wondering if you could reflect on this a bit and how, you know, the success of companies in China um, you know, within the domestic market affects their ability uh, to go global. Yeah. Um, look, in, in the in the in the in the pure consumer space, in the pure B two C space, I think your description is very accurate. Meaning, China is this massive market, and people are still getting to maturity in the Chinese market, and they spend you could spend ten or twenty years just sort of clawing your way to the top. Well, you know, if it's every everyday apparel, right? And you tend to focus in that value segment because that's what your home market is, is, you know, a, a modest priced products, not the luxury or the premium segment of the market. So so that is very much a domestic market. And only a few Chinese brands, I think of Huawei or Li Ning, have had much success outside of the Chinese market. But where they do a lot better is um, in the B2B segment. The B2B said the unbranded segment. 
So, and Alibaba, for example, has its own platform, confusingly called Alibaba.com. So Alibaba is both the name of the parent company and it's like New York, New York. It's just designed to say, what, what are you talking about? But it's, but Alibaba.com is a B2B platform. So for example, if you're in Ithaca, New York, and you're saying, I'm going to open up a restaurant and I need a hundred coffee mugs. Yeah. I'm sure you call up a restaurant supply company in Ithaca and they'll give you a quote, but you can go right online and I'll bet you it's a very similar quote. And it might be the same company that made both coffee mugs for the restaurant supply company or, or for sold out of China. So your ability, if you know what you want and you're buying regularly sort of industrial product or commercial products like that, Alibaba.com could be a wonderful boon. I had, I'll give you another example. I had an Australian friend, this is now several years ago, Australia mine regulations uh, safety regulations changed to lower the threshold for the size of the mine that needed to have uh, an internal uh, uh, stretcher, uh, uh, the, 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 the roller stretcher with uh, uh, collapsible that would go into the back of an ambulance, right? So all of a sudden there were like a thousand new mines that needed to procure these, these kind of large metal uh, rollers for if somebody you know has a rock lands on their foot or what. So, and I said, well, it beats me, but let's go to Alibaba.com. Sure enough, we found three different firms that made this product. And I said, I'd go, I'd ask all three for a sample. I'd say you could pay cost for all three if it's, you know, a few hundred dollars. And, and just to whoever performs for you and ships it down to Australia, uh, you know, is starting to win the contract. So if you need, if you need to buy a thousand collapsible, you know, metal stretchers, uh, you know, that's the place to go is Alibaba.com. Yeah, really interesting example. Uh, so the final question I have, uh, Frank, is actually, you know, what are the two or three pieces of advice you would have for people or even companies that want to do business in China? Well, we always look at uh, a few core questions because we'll, we'll talk to brands that say, hey, uh, you know, what about me? Can I make it or not? And one of the key questions is the product differentiated or is it generic? Uh, because China is this incredibly competitive, massive retail market, and more or less anything that's being made in the United States is already being made in China. Now, you might have a better version of it or a specialized version of it, but it has to have some distinctiveness to it to allow the uh, consumer to see that difference, right? So that's that's sort of the first set of questions. Why Why in the world should the consumer like this product? And by the way, there's some very good answers to that. The brand is part of an answer, and sometimes there's attributes of the product itself that answer. But that's, I think, the first kind of question. The second question is, tell me about the digital DNA of this product. Do you normally communicate and connect with consumers on a digital basis? There's something about the product or your message or your value proposition that can be communicated digitally, and the consumer respects that. If that is true, and by the way, that's increasingly true for all U.S. brands. If that is true, then there's every reason to believe, back to convergence theory, that the Chinese consumer also respect that. But if you come to us and say, I make this product, I make garden equipment and supplies, and we sell through 2,000 garden equipment stores in the U.S., we don't have any online process at all. We have no online sales. We have no social media in the U.S. We don't do a darn thing that I'd say, boy, that really kind of fails that digital DNA test because the only way we're going to talk to Chinese consumer is digitally, right? So I want to talk to somebody who says, here's, I've got a zillion followers on Instagram. I'd say, that's very encouraging. 
that's really neat because if you've got there's something cool about your brand, your product, your message, the consumer uh, fall in love with it. And there's a very simple question we'll ask everybody we talk to: If you bought this product for yourself or you received it as a gift, would you tell friends about it on social media? Is there social media currency for this? Is there traction for it? And if the answer is no, all I did was buy some a length of garden hose for my garden. I mean, I don't really post that on Facebook. That I, you know, I say, look, then then it's hard to see why we should get excited about it. You're not excited about it. Consumers aren't. It might be a great length of garden hose, but my guess is China's got a lot of garden hose already, and there might not be anything special or distinctive about your garden hose that motivates the consumer. So you're not in that differentiated space. And you don't have digital DNA. So this is not a product you'd start, at least start the conversation without being terribly excited about it. You always want to listen and learn. But, boy, it's hard to see how this one's going to work. Great. Really super interesting piece of advice. And thanks so much for joining us. Really interesting to learn about your book, China e-commerce. Thanks so much, Frank, for joining us on China Corner Office. Chris, thanks so much for having me on. It's a lot of fun to chat. As you can tell, we get very passionate, very excited talking about China e-commerce. We love working with U.S. brands and helping them win in China. Great. Thanks so much.